my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, a show to help us all feel a little less weird about money, one conversation at a time. I am your host, Paco DeLeon, and on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Aaron Lowry. It has become fashionable not to gatekeep things, which surprises me because growing up, gatekeeping was a part of being like pretentiously cool, especially when it came to knowing about music that other people didn't know about. These days, sharing isn't just caring, it's cool. Erin Lowry, the author of the Broke Millennial series, has had this philosophy since she published her first book in 2017. Erin's parents talked to her and taught her about money. She was lucky to have that kind of financial education growing up, and it gave her an advantage. But she noticed that many of her peers didn't have this same access. That's why she started writing about personal finance, making it relatable and accessible to help folks feel empowered to take control of their money. It was wonderful to chat with Erin, an author that paved the way for folks like me. We chat about her new book, The Broke Millennial Workbook, how to talk to your aging parents about money, and she also gives her advice on how to navigate tough economic times. Please enjoy my conversation with Erin.
Aaron Lowry, I am so excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your, I'm sure, hectic, crazy, busy schedule to chat with me today. I'm honored. It's so fun to be here already. Like, I just love getting to talk to you. Likewise. I cannot believe you are on your fourth installment of the Broke Millennial series. Can you tell me just a bit about why you decided to tackle a workbook and who is this workbook for? Well, despite having the word millennial in the title, which I know can be othering for other generations, it really is for anyone who wants to figure out how to take control and get their financial life together. And I also, like, first big disclaimer, while it is tied to the full series, you do not need any of the other books, nor do you need to have read any of the other books in order to do the workbook. The workbook really does stand on its own. Now, in terms of why I did it, I'm going to be honest, the publisher brought it up to me because I don't know that I would have thought about a workbook <laughs> by myself. But hey, apparently we all decided to better ourselves in the pandemic. And they're like, workbooks? They're the thing now. People want workbooks. And what better pairs with a workbook than money? Because, ooh, you can do so many different kinds of exercises. There are so many ways that we can take this. So really was the impetus behind Broke Millennial Workbook. And on my side too, I've changed my mind on a couple of things that are in the original book, Broke Millennial. And this was an opportunity for me to also say, hey, I'm not saying that advice is bad or wrong, but I have more nuanced thinking. And we also lived through a global pandemic that upended all of our financial lives. So I've got a few other thoughts about how to handle your money. And that's all included in Broke Millennial Workbook. I am very curious because when I published my book, right, we went back and forth with the drafts and the edits. And then came the the like, not the final draft, but there was a little clause at the bottom that said, if you change more than 10% of this draft that we're sending, you're going to have to pay for the resetting of, of, of things, right? And then I, I was filled with dread and panic because I was like, oh my God, what if I'm going to ruin people's lives with my words on the page? And I feel like I'm probably not the only author that thinks that way, right? Writing a book is really different than writing a blog post because you can just go on, you can revise it, you know, you can delete it, frankly. But a book lives on after you, right? Your words are immortalized in an object. And so I would love to double click on some of these things that you've you've changed your thinking on. The big one for me is emergency savings. Okay. And I updated my thinking on this prior to the pandemic. And then even within that, I feel like I further had more nuanced opinions based on seeing how many industries shudder for months and months and months on end. But originally, and it's in the, the first book, that I thought, you know, if you are paying off debt, I don't disagree with the prevailing wisdom of have at least $1,000 saved in an emergency fund while you're paying off debt. Sure, that sounds great. I do wholeheartedly believe you need some money set aside. Well, then the more I lived life, quite frankly, I was like, um, $1,000 doesn't cover anything. <laughs> like, it gets you nowhere, which is a horrifying thing to realize, by the way. Yeah. And some people might be listening and thinking, no, no, $1,000 covers it, which, wow, that's awesome. If your cost of living is at a point where $1,000 can really get you through a tough spot. Now, I do agree that that sum of money 
can help if something goes wrong with your car and you like need to replace a tire or if your dog gets sick and has to get rushed to the vet. Yes, $1,000 is going to mean you do not have to leverage that on a credit card, which is part of the goal here. But what happens if something really big goes wrong, like job loss? And if you do not have more than a grand set aside, are you going to be able to pay your rent? Are you going to be able to pay the minimums on your debt so we don't destroy credit during this period? Are you going to be able to keep all your utilities on, pay for the car? There's just so much more that if a big, big thing goes wrong, we need more than $1,000. So my updated thinking, and I talk about it a lot in the workbook, and I've also talked about it ad nauseum on like Instagram and other places, bare minimum is one month of basic living expenses. So we're not talking about the sum of money you need to be like, live in your best life for a month. It is bare essentials. Your rent or mortgage payment, your insurance premiums, your kid's childcare if you have a child, or you know, going to the pet sitter, whatever it is that you need in order to be able to go out hunting for a new job, transportation, minimum debt payments. Again, we're protecting that credit. So I walk you through exactly how to find bare essential living expenses. I think a lot of people get a panic sensation in their chest when I say this number because I just went from saying, oh, $1,000, which feels really doable to, you know, maybe your bare minimum essential is 3,500, four grand. And that sounds like so much, but that is a real buffer that really does protect you in an emergency situation. So if you're paying off debt, I want to see one month of bare essential living expenses in that emergency savings. And then some of it's risk tolerance. You know, how risky is, like, how do you feel, first of all? What's your risk tolerance? But also, how secure is your job? Are you somebody who's maybe more of a seasonal worker? Are you somebody who maybe sees long terms of unemployment? Then maybe you want that emergency savings to be bigger, even if you are paying off debt. Because the whole goal here is that we don't want to put ourselves in a situation where we've gotten so much progress on the debt repayment And then something big happens and we have to finance on credit cards again. Yeah. What about the advice folks have been giving out during the pandemic of a year's worth of expenses? How do you navigate that? Because even for me, somebody who thinks about money all the time, who talks to people about money, I'm in the finance space. When I think, oh, a whole year, I just feel kind of defeated, frankly. As do I. That's a huge sum of money for anyone. Like, Bare minimum or not, that is a ton of money. And it makes me feel a little deflated, partly because what else could that money be doing for me other than sitting in a savings account? Which, hey, at least we've got better interest rates coming back. That's the one perk of this inflation period. But again, I come back to risk tolerance. A lot of that being, do you personally feel that you need a year? How stable do you feel that your job is? But outside of that, The other thing I really like to talk about is your social safety net when it comes to an emergency fund. We fixate so much just on the money part and the supporting ourselves part, which of course is important. But think about, and there's an exercise in the workbook that really helps push you to consider whose couch can you crash on? Who could provide childcare? Who could loan you a car if you needed it? Like who in your network can help you get a job interview. Like do all of these things that provides also a social safety net for ourselves that if something big goes wrong and if we run out of our emergency savings, we still can have help. Plus also exploring in your community, what are the social safety nets that exist within your community as well? 
And some people might think of this as financial doomsday prepping. I'm not going to say that's wrong. It's not a totally inaccurate way to think about it. But I personally sleep better at night if I have contingency plans. So if your brain works like mine, it does really help to think through, okay, if other things go sideways, who can I reach out to? Who can I rely on? And that might make you sleep better at night if you end up in a situation where you're looking like, man, I did all the right things and I'm still going to run out of this emergency fund. I appreciate that you're orienting our thought process and the personal finance space in general. I know it's called personal finance, but you're moving away or at least bringing in these ideas that move away from this hyper-individualistic thinking and more towards community, which is like the OG way to be a human being on planet Earth, frankly. Like we we clearly need each other to survive. We're social creatures. The more we're isolated, the, you know, the more depressed we are. But we we literally need one another to survive. So I appreciate you bringing that up. I did a talk one time and a woman in the in the group was talking about how different communities help one another, you know, help each other out. And one of the things her community does, I can't remember the name of it, and I apologize for being a dum-dum and not remembering the name of this particular practice, but everybody in that community pays in like $20 a month. And um, whoever needs all that pool of money for whatever shit has gone sideways, they get to tap that money. And I thought that was really creative and supportive And it just made me realize there's so many different ways that we can help each other out and we don't just have to do it alone. She call it a SUSU? S-O-U-S-O-U? Maybe, yeah. It was definitely not English. And I was like, this is amazing. More people should know about this. SUSU. Yeah, I, I have heard of that strategy before and I know it has roots in a few different cultural practices. And it is just, again, if you're, particularly if you come from a community where you may be either didn't have the same sort of financial institutions that exist today, or it's just a practice that predates all of these financial institutions. And it just has lasted over the years and over the generations. And it's also such a trust network is what I find so beautiful about those, because you have to fully trust that if you're putting your $20 a week or a month in and somebody else gets the pot, that person's going to stay in and keep contributing which again, just kind of pushes to a more collective culture as well. Totally. It's like insurance, but not evil. (laughs) (laughs) Did you see this recent article that came out in the Atlantic? I think it's the May issue of this year. And it's called The Myth of the Broke Millennial. And I, of course, thought of you. And there's also this idea of the great wealth transfer that apparently is going to be happening over the next 20 years which is, you know, being predicted. And that idea is that over the next 20 years, parents and grandparents are expected to pass down something to the tune of $84 trillion um, to millennials and Gen Z. And so I wanted to talk to you about what are your thoughts about the changing narrative going from broke millennial to maybe moneyed millennial? And how can people navigate this transition? The first thing that I want you to know is whether or not that's going to happen for you. And I don't mean that in a sense of like, oh, is generational wealth knocking at the door? Better find out. I just mean more in the sense of we should be having open conversations with our parents about their financial future and how we are tied into their financial future. Because on the flip side, for people for whom that is not a given, and they are not likely to necessarily see the great wealth transfer, 
Are you going to need to take care of your parents as they age? Are you going to need to provide financial support? And that is the other side of this conversation that I don't feel like we're having enough. I like to phrase it as, are you your parents' retirement plan? People don't love that necessarily, but it is sort of the question that needs to get asked because the earlier you have that information, the better you can prepare your own financial life to potentially also need to help take care of somebody else in your family. Because how often do we get to a point where someone has an inciting incident, whether it's a a health scare or a job loss or something happens, and then all of a sudden you find out that they do not have the means to continue supporting themselves. And most of us are not going to be in a position where we're just going to let our parents flounder. Even people who maybe don't have the best relationship with their parents at the end of the day might decide, I'm still going to step in and financially support or do whatever needs to be done. So that's the other side of this conversation. But for people for whom, hey, this wealth transfer might be happening, again, I encourage you to have this conversation early and not in a way of like, hey, what am I getting? Like, (laughs) what are we thinking? Obviously, that's not the way to go about it. But I really love the concept of being able to distribute wealth early at points where it makes a critical difference in somebody's life. And people might be familiar with Bill Perkins' work, Die With Zero, which is a book he wrote, came out maybe a year and a half, two years ago, that really makes the argument, if you are somebody who has wealth to pass on, that you should be passing it on at points where it makes a big difference. You know, maybe paying for somebody's college education so they don't have to take on debt. Maybe it's providing help for a down payment. Maybe it's paying for a really nice vacation. There are various ways that we can be doing this. It doesn't all have to be huge sums of money either, but it's distributing this wealth at a point where it makes a critical difference in someone's life. If you're able to graduate college debt-free, that puts you at a huge advantage and not just in terms of your monthly budget. But think about the risk that you are able to take in your career if you don't have to just go get a job. Think about the entrepreneurs we could be creating by putting people in a situation where they can think and take risks early on as opposed to having golden handcuffs for 10, 20 years and then maybe making the pivot because they finally sort of feel financially secure. So two sides of this that I really see, but both sides really necessitate conversations with parents and Broke Millennial Talks Money, book number three, which you are extensively quoted in, talks a lot about how to do that as well. And the workbook gets into it a little bit. I really do love Broke Millennial Talks About Money. I think it's such a beautiful blueprint because, I mean, our culture is not open, right? We, we're not taught how to have these conversations, right? We're taught there's all sorts of weird stuff on the market. Like I'm not promoting this, but I'm just saying this exists. Like pickup artist stuff, like how to talk to women in a bar exists. But, you know, having a conversation with your aging parents about like, what is the on the horizon? How screwed are all of us, right? We don't know how to navigate those conversations. As you started talking about, you know, you should talk to your parents about whether or not they're, you are their retirement plan. I definitely, I got a little hot in the body, right? My, I felt like, oh, here, here is another financial expert coming on my show, making me feel some sort of way. And I'm sure there's a lot of people sitting there listening 
maybe they're about my age too. Their parents are still healthy. And it, this is something that they're, I'll deal with this when I need to deal with this. That's been their attitude, right? So talk to me, like, what are the first steps? Like, let's say we never talk to our parents about money. We never really talk to our parents about kind of anything uncomfortable or of substance. What are the first steps we can take to start having this conversation so that it feels, gosh, not like we are creating a kerfuffle to create a kerfuffle? What is the calmest, chillest way we can have this convo? So there's two strategies I really like to get started. And neither one of them involve directly asking your parents a question about money, which is why it's a great start. So the first, again, very much this depends on your personal relationship with both your parents and your relationship with money. Because parents love what more than anything? Parents love to give advice. Let's call a spade a spade. That is one of their favorite activities. So if you can ask your parents for advice, where really your mission is to pick up context clues and find out information, that's a really helpful way to start. So for instance, let's say that you recently changed jobs or you got one of your first big jobs and you have access to a retirement plan. Asking something like, oh, I have a 401k for the first time and I'm trying to figure out how to set it up. How did you figure out how to save for retirement? Which by the way, I think is the wrong language. We should be saying invest for retirement because that's what you're doing. You're not saving, you're investing, but that's a separate soapbox. (laughs) So mom and dad, I just got access to my 401k. I'm feeling a little overwhelmed about how to set it up. I'm just curious, how did you set yours up? Man, answers could be, here's the investments that we picked. Answers could be, oh, I've never had one. Answers could be, oh, I have a pension. Like whatever the response is, is going to give you some helpful information. Just file that nugget away in the back of your brain and we can bring up more questions later. Or it could be something like a personal thing that's happening for you. Hey, we're pregnant and we're realizing that we really should probably have wills going into this process do you have a recommendation for an attorney that could do a will for us? Oh, we don't have one. Well, that's some great helpful information for you because your parents absolutely need a will and both of you need them and advanced healthcare directives and everything to you know do with estate planning. Then maybe it's, oh, none of us have them. Let's have a will-making party one night <laughs> and we can all get together and figure out how to create our wills or hire an estate planning attorney to do that. So then it becomes a group activity. So there's the advice realm. Another option, particularly if you're like, my parents know I'm way better at money than they are. This is absolutely not going to pan out for me. Again, know the dynamic, read the room. You could go from just more of the perspective of, what are you guys thinking about for retirement? What does that look like to you? Just ask an open-ended question. If you think maybe that's going to make them a little defensive, it could be something like, oh, my friend Jackie's parents just retired and decided to move out to Montana for retirement. And honestly, that kind of surprised me. Have you guys thought at all about what you want to do? Contextualizing it with somebody else can be really helpful. Or if things are happening for their friends, that can also just open the door too. Their friend just retired. When are you thinking about doing that? Or a friend's spouse just died and it's a quagmire and bringing up, oh, that, I gotta be honest, makes me a little anxious. Have you guys figured out how to navigate all of this. And the final thing I will say, for those of you who are hearing all of this 
And you're like, oh no, I definitely do not want to have this conversation. Or are thinking, my parents are healthy. This really isn't a problem right now. My mother-in-law is 58 years old. She's going to kill me for saying her age on this, but she's 58 years old and got diagnosed with colon cancer three months ago. Perfectly healthy person prior, wouldn't have seen it coming. Except for the fact we find out she's a third generation in her family to have colon cancer. Now we're incredibly fortunate. She was, they found it in a colonoscopy. She was super proactive. They got it early. They were able to cut it out early. Everything came back clear. She is in fine health right now, which is amazing because that's not normally the story. So first of all, please make your parents get their colonoscopies is step one. And that's the only reason that I talk about this is because she's on a mission to make sure everybody gets their colonoscopies. But the bigger thing is, as soon as the diagnosis came in and we're on the FaceTime with her and we've had the hard conversation and then there's me who goes, so do you have a will? And does your husband know how to log into all the bank accounts and pay all the bills? My husband's giving me the elbow. Like, are you kidding me with this right now? I'm like, no, this is important. And it's important because she has to go have surgery. Heaven forbid something happens. She's the one that pays all the bills. She's the one that logs into the financial accounts. If he doesn't know how to do that, and none of us know how to do that, that's going to be a huge amount of stress and headache and grief in a time that's already incredibly filled with stress and anxiety and potentially grief. So the kindest act of love that any of us can do for the people in our lives is to have this stuff handled prior, to have these conversations before there's actually a problem. Because once there's a problem, there's so much other stress on top of this. So please, please, you, whether you're young and healthy, definitely with your parents, like start having the conversations very early, particularly around not just estate planning, because that's when they're actually dead, but what happens when they're still alive, but maybe can't make decisions for themselves. That paperwork needs to get done. And everybody needs to know how to get into accounts and how to pay bills in a household. Damn, Erin, you inspired me here. I'm hearing a couple of things. Your approach seems like a kindergarten teacher. And I love that. It's kind of like you just, you know, you're trying to implant something into a kid's brain or you're trying to, uh, you know, let's call it what it is, manipulate the situation to get information. <laughs> and when I think about it, I'm like, oh, that's how I would approach, you know, trying to talk to little kids. So treat, treat your parents like little kids. And that's how I approach writing, frankly. I'm like, would a five-year-old understand what compounding interest is if I wrote it in this way? And then the other thing I'm hearing, which I love and I'm all about, is have the uncomfortable conversation. It's not great. You're not going to jump out of bed in the morning and be like, you know what? I want to talk to my parents about wills, colonoscopies, and what they're doing for retirement. But better to have it now than to be having it under duress or when you're having to deal with a bunch of other things while you're making other hard decisions. Absolutely. And maybe those decisions could be avoided, actually by having the combo. And I would also say a big one too, and I would recommend reading uh, Mom and Dad, We Need to Talk by Cameron Huddleston, is if there's any history of Alzheimer or dementia in your family, that's another big medical scenario where you want to have all of the paperwork done early. Because worst case scenarios in those dynamics involves like having to take a parent to court and prove that they no longer can handle their financial situation so you can take over and handle it for them. 
what a horrifying thing to have to go through both as the child and as the parent, even if maybe their relationship to what is happening has changed because their mental capacity has changed. That's still, wow, what a horrifying thing to have to go through. So to just also make sure that you understand your family medical history, and that could be a reason to be bringing these conversations up, particularly if you watched your parents go through something really hard with their parents, you know, bringing that up and also expressing your pain and your anxiety about it. You know, parents respond to how we feel about things. So mom and dad, I saw what you went through with grandma and hopefully that never happens for us. But if it does, and it causes me a lot of anxiety to think about, I really need us to have, you know, advanced healthcare directives, power of attorney, an estate plan, all of these things. And Again, it's uncomfortable to talk about, but it is way more painful to have to try to be figuring out when you're already in a high stress situation. The workbook can walk us through. We have got checklists. We've got steps to figuring these things out, correct? You're our guide. Absolutely. Amazing. As well as Broke Millennial Talks Money has lots of checklists too, because these are all situations that require checklists, at least in my opinion. I, I love a nice checklist. You seem like you would, Aaron. I love that about you. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. You know, I love shopping but I always approach it responsibly. And I'm not just talking about shopping around for the best deal. I'm talking about some of the little things I can do that add up to healthy shopping habits. Like separating my fun money from my bills money. Taking the time to weigh my wants from my needs. Not buying impulsively because of an Instagram ad. And it's hard work, but it's important to be the best that I can be. Having healthy shopping habits means there's one thing I would never do. And that's relying on buy now, pay later to help me finance everyday expenses. It's like a drug that gives you a temporary high, but leaves you with a long lasting headache. It's a trap that can ruin your financial health, just like drugs can ruin your physical health. Don't fall for the hype. Don't be a victim of the buy now, pay later trap. They say they want to give you flexibility and options, but it can be a slippery slope. Take care of your financial health just as much as you take care of your physical health. Stay strong, stay healthy, and stay smart. Weird Finance. Weird Finance. Weird Finance. Weird Finance. I'm so curious. I want to talk a little bit of shop here. What was it like making a workbook? How did it differ from you know, turning in a 60 to 100,000 word manuscript, one. And two, like, did you learn anything new? Are you learning new things by the fourth book, Erin? What did you learn? Well, I learned that I'm definitely not an illustrator and that my brain really just wants to write to explain things. So that was a big thing I learned with a workbook compared to a traditional book because, man, was I just out here typing, 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 and then realizing like, oh no, this book's going to be just as long as all the previous books and then needs exercises. So got to figure out how to bring it down, which talk about a really helpful exercise as a writer is trying to get to the clearest point possible as quickly as possible with the fewest number of words. It's bringing me back to journalism school. But in terms of learning, yeah, of course. I mean, my favorite part about writing these books is I do get to keep learning. And not only because I continue to go through life experiences that inform my work, but so much of my work is built on talking to other people with more experience and more knowledge, which I get why people call me a personal finance expert, but I really prefer financial translator. Like I think that that really sums up what I do. And that is I go out and talk to the super experienced people with lots of knowledge and lots of information, but who tend to speak in a lot of jargon. And then I've figure out how to synthesize and distill that information into something that's not only relatable, but actually understandable and digestible. And then taking those strategies and applying it to a workbook was a really fun exercise for me. But also some of the exercises are really like traditional and, you know, whether it's journal prompts or whether it's, you know, writing in your numbers and facing all that information and the stuff that's really critical for us to do. And some of it is just like fun and hokey and like quirky and weird because I was like, you know what? 
let's kick it back to elementary school and some of those exercises that I remember doing. But it worked because things stuck in my brain after that. I love that. I want to ask you about something very topical of the moment, right? Over the last couple of years, 2021, 2022, we've experienced a tremendous amount of inflation. And the general vibe in the economy right now is not like we're not feeling great with tech layoffs and interest rates. So what is your advice for folks who are struggling during this economic moment? Oh, it's heavy. And I think for millennials, it's a little bit emotionally triggering because we've been through this before. And hello, Gen Z. Welcome. Welcome to what we've already experienced. Uh, We're happy to share what we've learned. I mean, at the end of the day, there is speaking to my fellow Americans. Unfortunately, there's only so much we can do about things like our insurance status largely being tied to our employers. And that if you lose your job, what does that mean? So if that gives you anxiety, the idea of, oh, maybe I work in tech and there have been a lot of layoffs and what does that mean for my health insurance? Start to ask those questions now. So again, going back to that doomsday prepping your finances. So you are informed for if it happens, then you're just ready to handle it as opposed to then there's the scramble to try to figure out, okay, do I have to like go do Cobra now? Or do I just like go right on the marketplace and buy my own plan? What are the plans available to me? What do I need based on my health concerns? All of that, talk to HR, start doing some research. I wish I was better on health insurance across the board, just in terms of knowing all the things, but it varies so much by state. It varies so much by all sorts of factors. But that's one area is if you were to experience a job loss, what are your biggest concerns out of that? Is it I'm living paycheck to paycheck or is it I need health insurance or myriad other things that it could be? So figuring out what your biggest concerns are and figuring out next, how could I handle it if the bad thing happens? The other part here too is What are your anxieties around your finances right now? Can you be shoring up cash reserves if that's going to make you feel better? Can you be, you know, creating your bare minimum monthly living expenses number so we know how much we're going to need if things go sideways? Creating all of these plans. Or if all of this is giving you a lot of anxiety because you're like, ooh, this is not how any of my brain works. Like I am not a planner in this way. I would just cover the basics, you know, get informed about your personal finances, face your numbers, make sure you know how much debt you have, where it is, what the interest rates are, what you owe, start creating a debt repayment plan, whether that's debt snowball or debt avalanche, which I'm not going to get into right now. They're really Googleable. There's a great site called undebt.it, undebt it, plug your numbers in, helps you figure out a plan, get broke millennial workbook, helps you figure out a plan. Anything to take control back for you, to me, is the narrative here right now. The last thought, look at freelancers. As a fellow self-employed person, we never have one stream of income. Our whole thing is diversifying our revenue streams because we have to. And I feel like not enough traditionally employed people think about that. That if all of your money is tied to one person and then that money goes away, yikes. So what can you be doing in this moment to diversify revenue streams? Maybe that means 
since you're a creator in some capacity and there's a product that you can sell or a service that you can sell. Maybe it means you start purging your closet and selling things that you already own that you don't use. There's so many different ways that we can figure out how to have a side hustle. And while I am normally not someone who's like, monetize your hobbies. In fact, normally I'm the exact opposite. It's like, have a hobby, leave it a hobby. Also think about how to diversify revenue streams though for a moment that is high stress like the current economic climate we're living in. It goes back to, I think, what so many millennials were doing early on because a lot of us were having trouble getting a full-time job that paid what we needed. So we were having to work multiple jobs. I mean, my very first job was a page for The Late Show with David Letterman. In addition to that, I was a babysitter and a barista at your well-named mermaid logoed coffee chain. I think anything we can do to model ourselves after freelancers in this time is a very interesting strategy as well, especially if you are worried about job security at your current gig. I love that. That's really great advice. And I too, and I'm a champion of uh, explore working for yourself, explore being the one who has to go and make the kill so that you can eat. And it really changes your perspective on a lot of things. It shows you how it, it actually might be a lot easier than maybe you were thinking it is in your mind especially if you're just really great at something and your friends are already asking you to do that thing, like help them sign up for their 401k or explain what a bond is, right? It might be a lot easier to monetize your skills. Um, and then what the other thing that I think is a little contrarian is often when you do find ways to work for yourself, you can make more money because you can run it, you know, on the cheap, but also you can charge more because you're not having to share your, your that revenue with the boss and the you know the legal department and the whole entity that you're working for right because for them when you work for a company they're trying to make a profit off of your cost right you're you're a cost line item i'm sorry to say that but you are so you can make more money which then in turn which you don't think having another job or having a hustle or working for yourself you might not think it actually creates more space to have hobbies, but I will say it does. I've been working for myself for a while now. And at first it was like, I got to do a lot of work here. But once you get it going, once the machine is working, you can find space. And I appreciate that you're out here. I'm um, talking about working for yourself because sometimes I do feel like, oh, is this like, you know, do the younger generation are they like, shut up, grandma. We don't want to hustle, you know, but it's valuable. It's valuable to learn how to how to do that on your own out in the marketplace. It is valuable. And let me tell you, there's no better time to figure out how to build another revenue stream than when you have a steady revenue stream already. So the best time to be figuring out what works is when you have that full-time job because it gives you more opportunity to take risk also, but you're not having to operate from a place of like desperation. And you're also not having to price things from a place of desperation, which can really help with figuring out how much to charge. And please remember to factor in taxes. That's a huge one. I think people undercut themselves and don't realize like we need to be cutting at least 30%, if not 40%, depending on where you live of this check to set aside to pay taxes, which doesn't matter how you work. Tax man is coming for you. Sure is. They sure are. I could talk to you forever, you know, but I'm not going to monopolize your time here. I do want to ask 
some personal questions before I let you go. And I'm thinking about it. When I was doing research, I was like, Erin gives a lot of advice, but I don't know if we harass her enough about her personal life. So here I am harassing you about your personal life. Uh, the, first thing, the first thing I want to ask you is, what has been your biggest financial struggle and how have you worked through it? You know, speaking of being self-employed, I, I get very anxious about the volatility of income. Mm. And I've been doing this for six years full-time. And I personally don't feel like it gets easier to deal with the highs and lows of how some months you are flush with cash and some months it is crickets. And that is so anxiety-inducing. And full disclosure, and I talk about it in the workbook, I actually kind of operate from a scarcity mindset. Like there is a reptilian part of my brain that every time things slow down, it's like, it's never coming back. You're done. This is it. You better figure it out because no one is ever hiring you again. Like my inner voice is not like, hey girl, this has always worked out. Don't worry about it. It'll come back around. It's like, you're gonna die. So having to play defense mentally against that is exhausting. Mm -hmm. And it does really help that my husband is like a far more optimistic person than I am. So anytime I start to voice this out loud, he's like, no, literally it's always worked out. Like, just look at the data, look at the history, like the exact same thing you tell people to do when it comes to like the stock market, like things are cyclical, they come back around. So I would say for me currently, that is definitely one of my biggest financial struggles is just kind of trusting myself to be able to earn, trusting that opportunities will continue to come. And, you know, no one likes inflation slash a recession. Like it is painful for everyone. And I live in New York. Like I live in one of the most expensive cities in our country. So to also just constantly maybe be questioning, I love living here being like, are we always going to be able to afford this? And then the last thing I will say it's another interesting part of living in New York and many other major cities in our country. It doesn't matter how well you're doing. Someone is doing better than you are financially. Way better. And the too. constant comparison. Oh, way better. <laughs> like you watch Succession, those people walk down the street and I see them during the day, you know? So I think that whether it is because we compare ourselves to people on social media, whether it's because we're comparing people in our like direct inner circle, or just because we have constant exposure on the street to people who seemingly, we don't know, I don't know their bank account, but seem to be doing better. That's also just what a mind bender mm -hmm. to constantly be having to process that as well. So I'd say those are kind of my very interesting, big level, like financial things that I feel like I'm battling with on a semi-regular basis. I completely relate. I mean, you don't need me to give you the pep talk, but I really want to because I like you <laughs> a lot. But you're like the voice of a generation. You pay the way for somebody like me to be doing what I'm doing. You're so employable. It's ridiculous. I feel like you probably get a ridiculous amount of opportunities coming into your inbox to do amazing things. I'm sure you've been asked a million times to do a podcast. I'm sure you've been asked a million times to do a TV show. But the way that I perceive you is you're like, nope, I'm Aaron Lowry. I write. I love to write and I'm going to write. <laughs> and so that's probably why you haven't uh, done all the other things that all, all of, of us other, you know, personal finance experts, authors are doing to, to diversify our revenue streams, right? Starting a podcast, pitching a television show, all these things. So you didn't need that, but I wanted to give it to you anyways. 
And I should be doing those things because I'm the person who just said diversify, diversify, diversify. And having multiple writing clients doesn't necessarily mean you're diversified. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, because, we're you know, every time we have a downturn, every time things get a little sketchy in the economy, don't you see, though, that actually our we have like an inverse relationship to right? As soon as people are freaked out, they're like, give a talk, write an article. We want you. Here's more money. And that's a really weird place to be in too, where you're like, recessions are an opportunity for people like us. Ugh, that feels so a little bit gross, but we're here to help. You know, we're here to help. It's true. All right, Erin, before I let you go, I'm going to hit you with these rapid fire questions. Okay, let's go. First one is, have you purchased something that maybe to the naked eye seems frivolous, but for you is money well spent? I wouldn't say it seems frivolous to other people, but I own a car in New York City. And to a lot of New Yorkers, that's like, I'm sorry, what now? And for me and my husband, it was a bit of a pandemic reaction. We lived in New York through the entire pandemic. We did not have a car in the beginning. And that feeling of being truly trapped, because there was really no way to get out if you didn't have a car, was uh, such an anxiety inducer. That was part of it. At this point, though, the bigger thing is we have a dog that can't go on a plane because she's too big. And we're not going to lie and say that she's our emotional support animal. So the only way to get her places when we travel is to drive. And she sheds like no one you've ever met. So renting cars is a nightmare. I have to fully like put garbage bags down and tape it. It looks like we're about to do something really sketchy <laughs> when we used to rent cars. And being able to own one, we get to travel more because it's very expensive to rent cars. And two, we get to bring her, which sometimes to people seems wild. I will drive almost 13 hours to my parents in North Carolina just so I can bring my dog instead of flying. And we also now have more opportunities to like go upstate and go hiking and go do fun things on a whim. So for us, it actually does have a ton of value. But to a lot of folks who are like, why the heck do you own a car in New York when truthfully, like everything in the city itself, we just take public transportation. We never drive around the city. It's only to leave. I appreciate the perspective there. Like, you know, that that emphasizes the personal aspect of personal finance. It's like what what you value, what works for you, what works for your lifestyle. You have to make those decisions on your own. Yeah. Also, used cars have barely depreciated in value. It is unreal to me that I am barely operating at a loss on that vehicle at this point. Dude, the car market has been really crazy too through the pandemic. I feel like after the pandemic, everything I thought that was, this is how the world works, was crushed. Like from GME to the fact that the government was giving us stimulus and giving us PPP loans that they're like, yeah, we're just, we're going to print, we're going to hit print. We're going to give it to y'all. We're going to write it off. No big deal. And yeah, yep. the car market, I mean, everything. It's like, I don't know if you feel that way, but there's a, my old boss always used to say, uh, the, there was an ancient Chinese curse that says, may you live in interesting times. And I keep thinking, oh yeah, finance is going to get boring again, but it, it remains to be fascinating and ever-changing and interesting. The gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> what is one piece of advice, financial or otherwise, that you would give to your younger self? Oh, I wish she had invested more aggressively earlier. Yeah, I feel like that's probably advice for a lot of folks. You know, I started working in college. And I'm like, why the heck did I not open a Roth IRA immediately? And, you know, to my dad's credit, he was trying. Like, he was really pushing, investing. And again, my brain wanted to be like, I must save it all. 
And a big part is I wanted to move to New York after college. Like I had all of these big dreams and I thought like, I have to be able to finance them. So I've been an aggressive saver, like so much of my life, but saver, not investor. So I wish that young me had been more thoughtful about building wealth and not just saving. That's a really good distinction to make. I really like that. Thank you, Erin. Did you have any financial superstitions growing up? Ooh, good question. I, again, was a big hoarder of cash. So as a kid, I had a candy tin in my bedroom that anytime I came into cash, so ways I would do that as a small child, uh, cat sitting for the truly demonic cat that lived next door when my neighbors would go out of town. Like this thing would hide behind the couch until I walked in and then would come out like swinging his claws and hissing at me. It was awful. Her name was Bonnie. Really, really unkind cat. I, you know, hawked friendship bracelets, sold Krispy Kreme donuts at my mom's yard sale, like all of these kind of things. Later, I did build a little bit of a pet setting empire. But again, I would be like so nervous about spending money. Like I would count it all, hide it in this tin. I had a little ledger that I would write down and like total up how much money I had. Like I was so into it as a really little kid, but it was hard for me to spend money then. It can still be hard for me to spend money now. And I, again, scarcity mentality, but I I don't know if the superstition is that it won't come back, but I... Okay, I think I can link this to, to the root cause of spending. Those of you who are also in your mid-30s uh, may remember a craze that went around that were clogs, the shoes. This was pre-Crocs, by the way. This was like a beautiful clog, and everyone was into them. Wait, can My you... Wait, 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 Erin, sorry. How old were you when you were obsessed with clogs, just for context? Like eight. Okay. So this was, I think, third grade. Okay, yeah. go on. Everybody was wearing them. Like it was the the trendy attire of the time. Okay. You know, like we're just about to hit Tamagotchi phase. It's like right before that phase in terms of 90s culture. So I really wanted a pair. And my mom was like, your feet are growing too fast. I am not buying these shoes for you. They're wildly impractical. If you want to buy them, you have to buy them yourself. And my parents were very big on if you want something, you have to figure out how to get it. Mm-hmm. So I saved up, I want to say it was like $13.99, went to Payless, cork bottom, blue fake velvet top, little ribbon around them clogs. I went to Catholic school. I know you know this life. There was a uniform. So a week later, clogs got banned as not being part of the uniform. So I had spent all this hard-earned money on this pair of shoes that I really wanted. And then they got banned. And then like immediately I outgrew them. Oh, So it was like my first memory of saving up and buying something. It just completely wasted in my, you know, little eight-year-old mind. So now the level of overthinking about making purchases, even as a grown-ass adult, the number of gift cards I have let go to waste and expire because I was waiting for like the perfect time to use them. It's bad. It's still something like, Personal finance experts always have issues, guys. Do not ever think we are infallible. We always have our things. And the number of gift cards that I have let... I had $150 worth of gift cards to a salon that went under in the pandemic. So I never got to use it. And it's because of sweet little ledger-keeping eight-year-old Erin and her clogs. And her clogs. I blame Payless for this. That's who I blame. 
the ledger really got me. It all sounded reasonable and normal. And then you said ledger. And I was like, this is. I found it as an adult. I had a little notebook that I like just recorded all of my little transactions and like how much I was saving or what I was taking out. I also, for a period of time, really before we moved overseas and I thought that I would have a driver's license at 16, I had this dream to be able to buy a red Mitsubishi Eclipse. Like that was my first dream car as a little kid. I guess I saw it on a car, like at a car lot at some point. And I think I had looked to see how much it cost because I had written down like the cost of the car. And then I was just saving in this little candy tin, (laughs) hoping that when I turned 16, I'd be able to buy it. I don't know why it's giving me like adorable grandpa energy for some reason. I mean, you're probably not wrong. That was probably (laughs) some of the energy that I was giving off as a small child. I was a big thinker. I love it. I love it. Okay. I know you already shared your financial fumble with the clogs, but my last rapid fire question is, can you tell me about a financial fumble that you can look back on and laugh at? Oh, I think we're like just shy of the laughter, but I can give you a recent one. Yeah, let's do it. So... Again, people who give financial advice not being infallible slash not taking their own advice all the time. In December of 2019, my husband and I had been aggressively paying off his student loans. So we got married in September of 2018. And at that point, we started, it was about $50,000 worth of student loans, a little more. And we were just trying to aggressively pay it off. December 2019. There's a sum left that's a little bit above the monthly payment we were making. I was like, you know what? I just really want to go into 2020, like clean slate. Let's start fresh. Let's pull that couple thousand dollars out of our emergency fund, even though I always tell people for the love of God, don't do that. Let's pay it off. I did this whole tweet about like money is emotional, blah, 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 talking about why we made this choice. And keep in mind, all of the loans at this point were federal loans because we had already paid off as private loans because we attacked those first. So we're all hearing this timeline. And, uh, you know, two and a half months later, the world starts to burn. My business income bottoms out for a while because like all events are getting canceled. Everybody's freezing their budgets. So we have raided our emergency fund. We are debt free, which feels really good, but my income doesn't look great. And then the federal government pauses student loan payments. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) Yes, for everybody else. But for us personally, it was like, gosh, we could have saved so much money. Yeah. So you know what? That was definitely in our household, a big financial misstep. But I will also say no part of me begrudges anyone who got to take advantage of not only the pause, but hopefully fingers crossed cancellation comes through. I have written about this on Bloomberg opinion that like, why? Because you did the hard thing. Do other people also have to do the same hard thing? No one who paid off debt should be begrudging folks who get to take advantage of an opportunity or a program. Because also it's outrageous how the system exists in the first place, but we don't have time for that. Snap, snap. Thank you, Erin. I appreciate you sharing that fumble and you know, yeah, it's like this conversation has selfishly made me feel better because, yes, I'm also out here telling folks what to do. And then, you know, behind the curtain every once in a while, I'll be like, you know what? I'll be the exception this time. And I do the thing that I'm not supposed to do. And I'm like, how can I look myself in the eye and be a self-respecting personal finance expert when I'm out here screwing up? But 
I really think it's important that we highlight this, that we're not, you know, we can, we make mistakes. And even though we spend all our, of our time thinking and optimizing and having conversations and figuring out the best way to make the best decision, shit happens. And money psychology, right? Like that's the answer to all of this is we can talk as much as we want about numbers and the way things should work and the rational side of things, but that's just not how anyone's personal finances work. It is all based on how we feel. Absolutely. And what our reactions are to things. And, you know, I just, I think it's so important for people to recognize that. And, you know, looking back on my 2019 fumble, I still was making an informed decision with the information I had at the time. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, what is so critical about all of this is we can revision as history, anything, but you're making decisions with the information you have at that time. And that's a decision that probably makes sense at that time. So just because things don't pan out exactly how you thought they would, doesn't even negate the way that you made the decision. It just might've been like, ooh, if I had had a crystal ball, the decision might've been a little different. Totally. Erin, this has been a wonderful, lovely, joyful conversation. I cannot thank you enough for sharing your expertise and your wisdom and your time. Where can the folks follow you along and where can they buy your book? Well, you can buy Broke Millennial Workbook wherever books are sold and all three of the other books in the series. Please support your local bookstore. Also, if you're listening to this and you're like, I am a broke millennial. I do not have the money in my budget to buy it. Check out your library. And if they don't have it, please request it. I just would recommend if it's the workbook, get like your favorite kind of notebook so that you can be writing since you shouldn't write in the library's copy. Or maybe they have a copy machine you can use. And you can find me on Instagram at Broke Millennial Blog, on Twitter at Broke Millennial. The website is brokemillennial.com. And please feel free to email me or DM me if you have any questions and want to talk. Thanks so much, Erin. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. 
This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Loose Change. On this edition, Chris Laughter and I are at the Grand Central Market in downtown Los Angeles, trading loose change for perspective. Today, Chris spoke with folks in an attempt to explore the relationship between money and happiness. We asked people three simple questions about the joy of spending money. So here it goes. Uh, what do you love spending money on? Ooh, on food. Like all my salary goes on food. Even when I travel, for example, Alvaro, my friend, it hates me because he wants to go sightseeing and etc. But I want to go to eat and I can eat a lot, a lot. Yeah, test me, test me. <laughs> uh, what about that brings you joy? Uh, yes, I mean, uh, I learned to cook like five or six years ago, uh, but I learned to eat like 34 years ago. I always been uh, a foodie, uh, and every time I eat, like I get very, I get very emotional. Like if I eat something wonderful, I swear that my hair goes up, my like my veins got full of blood, my like it's if I eat something very good I can be I can talk about it for months. And if I go to a very recommended place and the food is not so great, I got like very depressed, if you know what I mean. Like it, it like my day it gets ruined. I love your passion behind that perspective. <laughs> it's great. So would you say that money can buy happiness? Well, uh, yeah, I think, I think it can. Yeah, definitely can. Yeah. My man, what do you love spending money on? On my kids. On your kids. Yeah. What, what do you like to? What, what do your kids like? What do you? What do you like buying them? Uh, every time we go to Disneyland, they like uh, the pins, the Disney pins. Yeah. All right. The ears. Uh, what about this brings you joy? Seeing his smile. Happy, it makes me happy. Mm, amazing. Yeah, nothing better than that. So, would you say that money can buy happiness? Of course. You need money to go to Disneyland. <laughs> so, of course, money brings happiness. What do you love spending money on? My craft. What about spending the money on the craft brings you joy? The fact that it's building me in a way, like it has a, a more long-term return opposed to just spending the money and getting an item. Spending on my craft is building me up and improving me as a person. Okay, so would you say that money can buy happiness? No, I feel like happiness is a choice that you make. It's like already inside you, because if you're miserable without money, you'll be miserable with it. I'll take that. I'll take that. Hey. <laughs> I keep answers. <laughs> oh, that's great. 
Not everyone we asked to participate did, but of those that were willing, the thing that surprised me the most was how open these folks were, which feels like a good direction. Being open and talking with complete strangers about the joys of spending or the awkwardness of inequality won't solve all of our problems, but it's a damn good start. Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at thehellyagroup.com. Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, which is an iHeartMedia production and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. Ramsey produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a bit on this episode. Thank you to Chris Laughter for walking up to random strangers to ask them about money for the Loose Change segment. Thank you to my sweet wife, Jen Pablo, for lending her voice for this week's PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, or you want to be part of the show, give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or you can send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. All right, that's it. We'll catch you here next week. And in the meantime, take care. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.